0: Well, I do want to give a couple of comments. Uh, I've been away for about five Sundays now. So for those of you who are new to our church, maybe in the last month or so, uh, my wife gave birth to our son, April 22nd, a Saturday morning. And so through that time, he came eight weeks early. And so he was in a a NICU for um, almost a month in Oklahoma City and Edmond. And so during that time, my fellow elders uh, encouraged me and, and called me to take a pause on, on my work here in Enid and give myself first to Brooke and then also our son, and we've been back in town for about a week and a half, and uh, it, has been, it has been a joy in the midst of uh, this burden. It's easy as a man to uh, give birth to a baby. The, the woman does it all, and uh, so I'm very thankful. Brooke continually shows us uh, her strength, and I, I recognize, so, so for those of you who are maybe new to our church in the last couple of years, even when I was on the radar coming here as, as the lead pastor, it was very well known that Brooke and I uh, wanted to have kids, and we're trying to have kids, and have suffered. she has suffered greatly in the last couple of years of losing children to where we are in great thanks for uh, little Bradley to be delivered. But I also recognize that, that your prayers have been answered, and I recognize that you are intertwined in this. Um, and so I am thankful that as you see photos or hear about how big he is, I don't know how big he is, he's almost six pounds, but who really knows, he's tiny. As you, as you hear about all stuff, all that stuff. I pray that you will um, you will cherish the joy that we have in God um, giving to those who did not deserve anything. Uh, a couple of things I just want to say on, on that note. Um, we Bradley came eight weeks early, and it got incredibly serious uh, and severe right before the birth. Uh, we went in for Brooke went in for a checkup on a Wednesday. Um, one of her friends, a member of this church. Uh, strongly encouraged her to drive down to Oklahoma City to check herself into the hospital because her blood pressure had spiked. Um, Brooke was very chill, which means I didn't know how non-chill it was. This person, thankfully, was not chill and escorted Brooke in a car all the way to the hospital, Uh, and then I was finally called and said, where are you? And I'm like, I'm hanging out. Uh, so got to go down there and within a Saturday morning, they checked her in on Friday night. We stayed the night in the hospital on Saturday morning, about eight. A nurse came in and said, you know, we'll probably deliver the baby on Monday, maybe at most Sunday night. And then they came back in 10 minutes later and said, we're going to take him in the hour. The doctor's on his way. It's gotten that bad. So we of course are like, what do we do? Uh, we did nothing. So Brooke was ushered into the operating room. Um, I went to another room where you gown up as, as men do and sitting there waiting took a selfie. It's pretty great. But then it got really serious when the doctor, <laughs> when the doctor came in and said, how are you doing? I said, I'm, I'm, I don't know. I don't know what to do right now. And he said, well, I need, to, I need to walk you through, or she said, I need to walk you through a couple of things. Uh, one of the things that she said that I didn't really realize until a couple of days later as I was processing this with Brooke is that she said, you, you need to know that there is a really good chance that either your wife or your baby will not survive this birth. Um, So we're very thankful uh, for the Lord to provide in that. Over the next several days, uh, we had different uh, friends uh, stop by, Baptist Integrus in Oklahoma City, uh, and just to hang out or whatever, and I'm going to end with this and then try to transition into a sermon, though I have a lot of stories to tell in the last five weeks, but uh, a friend came by on his route working partly at Oklahoma City, came by, gave us a gift, and uh, nice, uh, wonderful card from he and his wife, and a, a wonderful gift from them. They, they too had had kids, or had a kid in the NICU for a long period of time, so they wanted to give us the clothes that they had. Uh, when a baby comes out uh, in the NICU, it's really tiny, <laughs> so none of the clothes that we had fit. We don't have anything ready, but so they brought by um, NICU clothes, and he said it uh, just kind of as an aside. He said, you know, what's great about these clothes is it has the buttons, has the buttons on top. Um, so that all the IVs and all the the tubes and everything can be easily accessed. You don't have to worry about that. And I just thought, man, later reflecting, oh, guys, guys, here, listen. The reason we have joy and hope this day is because there will be a day when you do not wear prenatal clothes and when you don't need buttons on the front because there will be no pain or anguish or an oxygen piped up to your face. And so as we sat... And yeah. so, as we as we sat, or I sat, Brooke <laughs> Brooke Brooke was in the hospital for eight days, and I was just living life, you know. Uh, but as we sat and waited, and got to visit him, and uh, throughout the days and throughout the weeks, and now we have him home with us, uh, we can't wait. We can't wait to tell them of that great hope. So let me let me, let me pray again, and let's go into the Word together. A gracious and heavenly Father. Uh, we pray that you would teach us now from your word and that the, the moment by moment, little by little lessons that we have from your word direct bit by bit our hearts in affection to the one that we can rest in internally. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Can men, can men ruin the reputation of Christ toward the world by not acting like men? Can men ruin the reputation of Christ to the world by not acting like men? Maybe another question. Men, can you imagine acting in a certain way this morning in this hall? Can you imagine acting in a certain way to such a degree that it actually hurts the witness of the gospel going out to the world? Maybe another question and take a step back, take a big step back, are there differences between men and women? Are those differences facts? Are those differences fictions that have been built up over time? Are are men different than women? So many today believe that gender is imaginary or even assigned by people or culture. They think that gender is a label. And by doing so, they, they take the line. Think of a line between masculinity and femininity. They take the line and they actually erase it. Because they believe there's no inherent reason why women should act like men. And there's no inherent reason why men should or shouldn't act like women. The, the labels are just interchangeable. They're characteristics. I might be one way, but I can act another. All of us know this is a growing view in our culture in the last really five years, with the result that some women no longer act like or want to be like women, and so many men no longer want to act like or be like men, to the point where men oftentimes don't even know what it means to be a man. If your six-year-old looks up at you and says, Dad, what does it mean to be a man? How would you answer? The Bible stands against the idea of non-binary thoughts of our time. The Bible stands against the non-binary thoughts of our our time. The Bible insists that gender is God-given. It's a God-given fact. God created male and he created female. It recognizes that the identity of every human being is gender-specific. The Bible announces essential differences between men and women. Culture doesn't. The Bible announces differences between men and women. The differences between the masculine and the feminine go back all the way to the sixth day of creation when it says, When God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Creation established the true equality of men and women. We often think of men and women actually not being equal because. He might have created women and look at their superpowers or might have created men and look at their superpowers at the actual leveling off or the the traction of the women's superpowers or the men's superpowers. So we elevate this above one another in their equality. Now what we've got to grasp onto is that God made men and women equal in how he views them as image bearers. They're equal in value. They're equal in stature as image bearers. Yet, think of it, these are two different hands they are given two different roles in life. They're given distinct ways in which they can live. Creation established the true equality of men and women. Both male and female are created in the image of God. And at the same time, the distinction or the differences between man and woman is divinely ordained. What makes a man, man? God has ordained it. What makes a woman, woman? God has ordained it to the to the nth degree to where you can actually look at someone and say men are better than women at being men and women are better than men at being women. they just are so it comes as no surprise that God sometimes has special instructions for men and then special instructions for women especially within the family life and especially within the church the church is God's household you think about it that way as the apostle will emphasize in his purpose statement in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, and every household has its rules. You know, we might say griffins act a certain way within our community, or you might act a certain way within your household. The Bible actually addresses men and women separately from time to time and also addresses them jointly from time to time for such a degree or for such a purpose of having order within the house. You can imagine talking to your nine-year-old, distinctly from talking to your 13-year-old so that the 9-year-old and the 13-year-old can understand what you're saying and actually have or living within an ordered world within that house. So when it comes to God's house or in our passage's particular point, when it comes to public worship, that's what he's talking about here, when it comes to public worship, the Holy Spirit doesn't hesitate to say that there are differences between men and women and men and women should act differently within the household of God. Now, this passage is in the midst of a longer section where Paul instructs Timothy on how the church in Ephesus, the audience is Ephesus, how the church in Ephesus should pray. Paul commands the congregation to pray for kings and all those in authority because he wants God's people to be able to read or to be able to lead a peaceful and quiet life. Why, why should we pray for a president or a mayor or anyone who's in authority over us so that we can live peacefully? I think in the year 300 or 400 there was a there was a charge from a bishop towards the king of this particular area that was telling the king of the area please leave our church alone and remember we are the best citizens in this city the christians are the best citizens in the city so please leave us alone and that's In part, what Paul is calling this church to do, to pray for those who are in authority because they want to live a peaceful life, because he wants to preserve the conditions that are friendly to evangelism and holiness. So in verses 8 through 15, in a continuation of this argument, he describes to Timothy how men and women in particular are to conduct themselves within the church for the sake of order, for the sake of evangelism, for the sake, because God who loves all wants all to come to him so that all might be able to hear. In particular, within the public service of worship, when they gather together. It's the context or the setting in this passage. This is actually why Paul writes this letter. Paul says in chapter 3, he's trying to tell Timothy how people are to behave in the house of the Lord. Now, for your case today, in the house of God, there's not a unisex aisle of which we all worship. God calls disciples as male, and God calls disciples as female. Two distinct sexes. You don't get rid of your maleness when you come to Christ. You don't get rid of your femaleness when you come to Christ. And it's used uniquely, your maleness, your femaleness, it's used uniquely for the advancing of the glory of the Lord. Think about that. Holding on to what makes me, me. God is saying by by me using who you are, that is advancing the kingdom of Christ. God commissions males and females as to how they're to follow Jesus. Paul's concern is, is for how men and women behave as they gather for worship. He's going to give, I think, in a natural flow and language, three applications to characterize men and women when they come together for public worship. We often view this section of scripture as instruction, but in many ways, it's actually application from the very gospel. So you have the gospel, which changes you, but then actually calls you to live in accordance with that gospel message, which is why we say, and it's not us who invented saying it, the gospel is for Christians. To to use one late theologian, we often think of the gospel as a diving board into a pool, recognizing that the pool is actually the gospel itself. The goodness of Christ brings us into the glorious peace of his own kingdom. And so here we have us, you can think of it within the invisible kingdom of God, how we should act. He he does this in a flow, verses 8 and then 9 through 10 and then 11 through 15. We're only going to be going through verse 8 today, but in verse 8, he calls for public worship to be led by holy men. And then in verses 9 through 10 he calls for public worship to be inhabited by learning and modest women. And then he calls in verses 11 through 15 that public worship should be ordered by gender uh, by biblical gender norms. Now, I know that much of what this text teaches is explosive in a lot of people's hearts and minds in their perception of what should be And I know that it'll go against much of the waves of the last 550 to to 100 years of theological liberal movements, some of which have even infiltrated our very own denomination, where they, they want to conflate male and female and say, you can do whatever you want. As long as you think that God wants you to, then you can live however you want. And I know that whenever there's instruction for men to act a certain way, And it's followed up with instruction for women to act a certain way. There are going to be some of you who say, how dare you? And I just need you to know that all of us, this is not a message from me. This is not a message from our elders. This is not a message from our church. This is the written language of the words of God, where Paul, remember what Paul says when I was beaten like a dead horse several months ago. Paul is saying, these words are not my words. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. Meaning these are Jesus' very words. And so what I want you to hold on to is this this tension. If you feel like this is an affront of you, or if you think this teaching is anti-you, or anti-your calling, or anti-what-you-want, I just want you to ask yourself, if what the Bible says is true, do I trust God that I can submit to it? If it's true, then can I submit to it? Much in the same way you might look at a seatbelt in a car. I hope this analogy works. You look at a seatbelt in a car, and you pull it across your body, and you click it. You are basically trusting that seatbelt to do what that seatbelt is designed to do. So when you come to God's word, and sometimes it looks at you and says, you are not who you ought to be. (laughs) Boy, does it say that every time. You are not who you ought to be. I want to to ask you to submit yourself to understand what is it saying, and can I trust it, knowing that if it is what it says it is, that God is making me more in the likeness of a son. Now, what I must say is to test everything that I'm about to say in accordance with what the word and sound doctrine say. This isn't our message. This is what the word is said from an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember his words, his teaching, they are the words of Christ Jesus. Now, first thing, if you're using an outline, now on point number one, who does Christ, I'm going to use that language, Paul is writing to Timothy, Paul is writing the words of Christ, so who does Christ call to lead in worship? Who does Christ call to lead in worship? The first thing, you look at this passage, so we're just going to look at the first part of this verse. First thing Paul says about public worship when it comes to internal matters is it's to be led by holy men. Not just men, but holy men. Look at verse eight there. I want you to notice very carefully, verse 8, that there is a therefore at the beginning, which ties it into the understanding of the words in front of it. And then there's a change of subject in verse 9, where it says, in like manner, that's where the subject changes. So this same word appears later on in the chapter, uh, in chapter 3, verse 8, and in chapter 3, verse 11, where the subjects change each time. But the subject hasn't changed in verse 8. It's therefore built on the first seven verses. So I want you to notice that he says, I desire, or my will. He uses... He uses a word in particular, not the word thaleo, which is often used before and even in verse 4 before. You might look up in your own text and say, mine says, who desires? And then verse 8 says, I desire. Do you think those are the same word? They're actually not the same word in the Greek. The one in verse 8 actually comes with a harsher tone to it. You can imagine it would say, I command or I demand rather than I want. It says, I demand. He says, I desire. This is the will. Uh, it's his will and its desire. This is below may I, the will of mental purpose. It's almost like I demand or I command or I purpose that this should happen or I lay down an absolute. Paul is now in a commanding mode now because of what the words just said. This is a tremendous statement about why we're to pray for the lost. I'm telling you, the men are to pray in every place. That's what Paul is saying. Just after the language of we should pray for the lost, we should pray for the government. And I'm telling you, I demand that the men should pray in every place. Now, would you please notice that where it says men, it is taos and dras, or the plural of anur, which is man, not in the generic sense, but in the man or the male sense. It's not like he's saying mankind or hey, Everybody. Or or what do we all do in our common language when we walk into a room and there are people there? Hey, can someone come and help me? It's just a general broadcast. No, what he is doing in this particular case is he is directly talking to the men, maleness in their sense, as opposed to what he will later say in verse 9, female. He doesn't say a general word for women kind, but says ladies. So he says men as males. That is to say, in the life of the church, when the church comes together and it's time to pray for the lost, The men are to do the praying. Now, this is the emphasis of the text. This is very clearly used here. This is to say that Paul selects his terms very carefully. I will, I desire, I command that the men or the males are to pray. Now, earlier before this in the Jewish synagogue in the Old Testament, the only men were permitted to pray. And the stress here leads to us to believe that this was carried into the church in terms of leadership within the church, being as we know in Scripture, belonging to the men in public worship. And apparently in Ephesus, this was being tested by some women who were usurping the male's role within the church as it would gathered. We'll find that, by the way, next week when we go through verses 9 through 15 with the instruction of how women are to not only act like men are supposed to act, but women are supposed to act in public worship, and how they're also to submit to the teaching of the elders. But nonetheless, it is God's pattern for the life of the church that men are called as those who are to lead in public worship. And in this situation, the apostle, writing the words of Christ, affirms that. It's not the first time it's ever said, but he affirms this. He says that I demand of you not just a simple wish of the heart, but I lay this down below my, as a demand that the men do the praying. And the men do the praying. Now my version, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, it says that men should pray, quote, in every place. Maybe yours says everywhere. That little phrase in the Greek is used four times by Paul here in 1 Corinthians chapter one and in 1 Corinthians or in First Thessalonians chapter one. And the setting of all four places, all uses of what this word is, the setting of all these places is one thing, and it's the gathered assembly of the local church. So when the church gathers, wherever it gathers, a command is that men pray. The context here is that when he says, In every place, he's saying the local church. And the word here for pray is regularly or habitually praying. It's to be the common practice that uh, prayer goes on in behalf of the unsaved people and for the Christians, and it's to be carried out by men within the local assembly. Now, this isn't anti-women teaching. This is Paul not being anti-women. It's not putting too much weight where weight isn't. And when you and I see the Scriptures, we have to deal with what the Scriptures say, not what we want them to say. The, the fight against this, so commonly in, in more, not more, in liberal leaning churches or liberally established churches, is they would say, This is Paul talking to a particular group of people, not fit for us. The, the culture has changed. And so it's different. And we just need to understand that, that if that is your line of argument, then if you agree that these are the words of Christ, then, then everything that Christ would have said, such as, Don't murder, would be a cultural identity. So you and I can go around murdering each other. None of the scriptures disagree with each other. None of the apostles disagreed with Christ. Christ didn't teach anything that was not in accordance with what the prophets had been given or had been giving to God's people. That were from the words of the Lord. All of the scriptures give the same message and they don't contradict one another. So this isn't anti-anything but pro for the sake of the gathered assembly. When you and I see the scriptures, we have to deal with what the scriptures say. And so... You might read this, being a person of the word, you go, wait a minute, this is saying the men should lead in this place. And if men are doing the leading within the worship service, what about 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 5, where it says that if women pray and prophesy, they should do so with their head covered as a proof of modesty and humility and submission. So does 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 5 indicate that women can preach or proclaim, and can they pray? Or is there a contradiction? The answer is no, there's no contradiction. And yes, women can prophesy and preach and pray. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says that a woman should, if she does prophesy or proclaim God's truth, if she does pray, she should do so with the role of submission being made noticeable. And when a woman prays or prophesies in the Corinthian culture with her head covered, sort of showing off her freedom, she violates the standard of God. And what we, have to, we have to agree with that. You and I have to agree with 1 Corinthians 11 if I'm going to tell you, please agree with 1 Timothy chapter 2. But how could you not agree with it? It's the scriptures. But the thing is, the point is, is that 1 Corinthians 11, if you go on a few chapters, you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and in 1 Corinthians 14, about verse 35, it says, it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. And so you should compare the two. Looks like he's saying one thing and then saying another. And so how do we line these up? I think it's easy to understand and obvious of what Paul is saying, and it's been obvious for 2,000 years, up until the last 50 or 100 years, women can pray, and women can proclaim the word, but not in the duly constituted assembly of the church when it's gathered for worship. That's obvious. And it's confirmed right there in First Timothy chapter two, verse 11. Let the women learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Remember the context here of every place, the gathered assembly. She's to remain quiet, not exercise authority over a man all the time, 24 hours a day, lifelong. Of course not. Of course not. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying here is when the church comes together in its duly constituted worship, and the little key phrase here is that little phrase, in every place, or everywhere. The point is, when the church comes together under the leadership of men, which is obvious when Paul would later describe the qualifications of elders and pastors and overseers in chapter 3, they can't be anything other than men. And when he says, when they come together for assembly, these are the men who are to rise and to pray in the normal fashion of the church. And so you say, well, where can women proclaim? A woman can proclaim the word of God with friends. She can proclaim, as Psalm 68 says, the woman who announces the good news are a great host. She can teach in many, many environments, but the word is clear not in the official assembly of the church when it comes together in every place for the purpose of worship and leadership and training and teaching. That is for the men to do the leading, and that's why the scripture outlines this very clearly. That's why 1 Corinthians 14 says that women are to be silent in the churches. And so you can imagine the the underpinning, the undercurrent of this teaching here is that it's clear as Paul writes to Timothy and says, I need you to stay in Ephesus. I need you to help instruct this church. I need you to, to write this. We would have to conclude that the opposite of this is happening. And we would have to conclude from that that when the opposite of this is happening that when men and women are not acting like constituted men and women, that that is a disaster for the church's witness to the ends of the earth. Now, you may say, that's different than what I would think would cause harm as we witness to the church. And to that, we can just take the word for what it is and trust it for the building up of our own case, while also at the same time, we can look at history and just say, where has every church that has disobeyed God's word when it comes to sexuality found itself 20 to 40 years later. It is no longer a gospel preaching church. They do not affirm the gospel of Jesus Christ. And why would they, if they look at a woman and say, that must be a man? Or if they look at someone who's called to something and say, you're not called to that. Or they look at someone who's not called to something and say, we're actually going to put you in a position to fail. So we have to take the word of the Lord for what it is. It is for our good. But women, this is not against you. This isn't talking about you at all. This is talking to you men who cave in your masculinity, who shy at the role you're given to stand before God's people and say, God, help us. God, teach us. God, instruct us. God, defend us. Imagine a dad who doesn't lock a door, in fact, leaves it open, knowing that wolves are outside of his house. And then when they walk in and they size themselves up to his wife laying next to him in bed or children down the hall, imagine what that says about that guy, that man, who is given a role. Ladies, some of you, if you're not married, God willing, will have a man look at you in some way and say, this is it. I promise to protect you, and I promise to provide for you. And you have an opportunity there, ladies, young ladies, old ladies, you have an opportunity there to look at him and size him up. And you might go, I don't know. Not because of his bank account, I'm not saying that, I'm just saying, I don't know if you'll protect me. I don't know if you'll be what the Word calls my knight in shining armor. I don't know if you'll be what the Word says for you to pray for me. And ladies, if you ever find yourself in the face of a man like that, don't succumb to pressure, a feeling like it's bad to be alone. But honor, again, the words of the Lord that it's better to be single than to be with a coward or a loser or someone who will look at you and say, I can't protect you, which means I actually hate you. The call of this passage is for men to act like men, which means, in part, to lead in prayer. It goes on to say that they should behave in a second way. How are men to lead? Christ's words identify who should lead within the church, and it's men. And then he also identifies how men should lead, how men should behave. If you remember or have read verses 1 through 7, this tells them what he wants them to pray for, but in this verse he describes how he wants them to pray, and it zeroes in on two things. There's a positive thing and a negative thing. I hope you see that. There's a positive thing, lifting up of holy hands, and then there's a negative thing. Do so without anger or quarreling. So let's look at the positive thing first. Zoom in on now on the second part of verse 8. There's a positive. We're to pray. Men are to pray with pure hearts. On a positive side, he says that the men should pray while lifting holy hands. And that action of lifting holy hands is a common posture for prayer. And throughout the Old Testament, you see when people pray, they sometimes lift holy hands. So he says, I want the men in every place in worship to lift holy hands. In verse Kings, Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord. He spread out his hands toward the heavens and he prayed. In Psalm 28, David cries out for help by lifting his hands to God's holy sanctuary. On and on. There are biblical examples of this in Psalm 63. So I will bless thee as long as I live. I will lift my hands to thy name. Even Jesus in Luke 24, verse 50 says, after the resurrection, it says of him, he led them out as far as Bethany and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. So lifting of hands is a common posture in prayer. I don't think Paul is saying that every prayer has to look like this because the text doesn't just say lifting hands, but it says lifting holy hands. There are other postures in Scripture for prayer as well, such as kneeling or lying on the ground on your face or standing. So the emphasis isn't designated on the physical outcome of the action that's given to us in the Old Testament, but rather a spiritual identity that is given to us in regeneration. We're to go to the Lord with purified hearts showcasing itself with holy hands. The word holy here is not the word heios, which is the normal word that you and I would use for holy. It's hosios, which means the opposite of polluted, unpolluted, unstained by evil. How are we to pray? With unpolluted hands, unstained by evil hands. So when those men stand before us to pray, they're to be men whose lives are holy and men whose hearts are pure. Now, what Paul is talking about is an attitude or a reputation of the one who's praying. And we should know this because of how Paul speaks. He speaks biblically. Out of the voice of this lion of the New Testament comes so much language and beautiful baggage from the Old. He speaks biblically. And as Paul often does, he instructs the church through the scope and the instruction of the Old Testament. The reference to holy hands refers to the temple worship in the Old Testament where God's people would consecrate themselves by washing their hands before prayer. Pools of water were scattered around the temple mount as God's people went up to worship. They would say in Psalm 26, "I wash my hands in innocence, O Lord." But there's an extreme reference in the Old Testament to the lifting of hands. You just You just got to see it to appreciate it. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, a lot of way to the left, maybe kind of towards the middle of your Bible, but Isaiah chapter one, the very, very beginning. If you've gone to Song of Solomon too much, if you're all the way to Jeremiah, keep going left, Isaiah chapter one. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 15, it says, When you spread out your hands, I will hide my face from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen to them. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Our hands are what we use to do things. So our hands are signifiers or representations of our deeds. Our deeds can either be pure or defiled. I imagine a lot of you who work outside, you have more calloused hands than maybe I do. You see a man with calloused hands or a woman with calloused hands, you go, I bet she's a hard worker. I bet she's a hard worker, or I bet he's a hard worker. And in this case, what do the hands of these people have on them? Blood. And not the good kind. In the Isaiah text, their hands are covered with blood, so God rejects them. Yet in 1 Timothy chapter 2, God calls on the men. He tells them to pray by lifting holy hands. He's saying their public displays of worship must flow from a life marked by holiness. That's what it means. It, it means that you should pray out of a life dedicated to holiness. This is what Jesus said, that God is looking for worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth, not those, it says, who worship him with their hypocrisy. So that we come here every week and we can't see what's on one another's hands, God says very clearly in his word that he knows what's on his people's hands. God knows your deeds. And he says, if there's blood on your hands, then you should repent of your sin by the blood that was slain for you and call out to the one who brings you purification of your heart by granting you what seemed to be defiled or what was defiled now is new. So if you find yourself here every Sunday, Sunday after Sunday, with defiled hands, the message of the gospel is the same. Turn to the one in confession, to the one who can purify you. Now, for the last several weeks, this is an aside, here we go. last several weeks, we've we've kind of changed a little bit of our flow of worship. Uh, One theological way that you could view this flow of worship that we had, we didn't invent it. Um, It's called a covenant renewal style of worship, where you and I, on a weekly basis, come in here as what? Sinners in need of God's grace. What do we do from the very beginning? Allow the Lord to announce himself from his word and then sing in adoration of his glory and his goodness. I'm not gonna come in here if God is not worthy to be adored, but I will come in here and praise him if everything that we sing or hear is true. And what does that cause us to do when we pray in adoration? It brings us to our knees, doesn't it? If he's God and that's him and he sees me as I am, then Lord, hear my confession. Assure me of what has been done for me on the cross of Christ. Lift me up to an understanding of the gospel once again. Remind myself of this covenant that you have made with my heart and make me pure. And then we respond in various ways. It's not by accident. The Lord sees our hands as they are and calls us to come to him with our impurity. Just like we saying. Jesus said that when I'm lost, he will come to me. And he showed us on that cross that he will come to me. For the Lord is good and faithful. Friend to you with defiled hands, he will make you right as you place it in his. So as we come here every week, we, see what's on, we don't see what's on these, one another's hands, but God knows. And men, especially those of you who are in the sphere of leadership, God cares very little about your work or your deeds if you're lifting hands to him which aren't holy but defiled. One preacher of mine, one preacher friend of mine said, God doesn't care about your solo in church if you live satanically at home. God is interested in the purity of prayer. So that's the positive. Men lift up holy hands in prayer. That's the positive charge to men. Worship the Lord with a pure heart. Can you imagine a church that is dead set on doing that? Where the hundreds of men who come together and gather around each other are dead set. Not on buffeting their own bodies, not on being more important or proud than everyone else, not just being the smartest ones in the town, but aiming just to lift our hands in holiness. The negative here is that he says that they should live pure lives. When Paul mentions here, so this is number two, point B, when Paul mentions the outward sign of holy hands, he is talking about the inward reality of a holy life. One kind of unholiness, especially, was the causing, was the causing problem in the church of Ephesia. The the sin of rebellion to God's will and to God's way. That's really what's going on here on a regular basis. The sin of rebellion to God's will and God's way. Keep this in the context of men acting like men and women acting like women. When we go outside of those bounds, we're rebelling against what God has said for us to do and to be. God warned the church as men to pray without anger or quarreling. Quarreling, bickering, was exactly the problem at Ephesus Angry words were being exchanged. This subject keeps coming up. The false teachers were creating controversies rather than doing God's work. We see that in chapter 1, verse 4. The result was constant friction among the people who are depraved in mind. Chapter 6, verse 5. The sins of anger and argument have relevance for men, don't they? It is true on occasion that women can disturb the peace in the church. But as a general rule, men are more likely to agitate the church, especially when it comes to doctrine. Men are typically like that. They are critical and competitive. They tend to argue first and listen later. They would rather be right in their own minds than resign themselves to truth. Then they get angry. And when they don't get their way, the Bible reminds the Christian men to not be angry but holy. Now the Bible's clear that when we find ourselves angry, we shouldn't strike one another. So if you and I disagree on doctrine ethics or life i shouldn't go up to you and punch you in the face we all know that we're all restrained by that in a little bit of way we should live at peace we should have a sense of passiveness when it comes to aggression towards other people but how do fallen people act when they even show restraint towards physical anger towards someone else
1: ah they become
0: passive aggressive don't they Maybe I'll say something that'll cut you. Maybe I'll spread something that will destroy you. Maybe I'll just suggest something, because I'm not going to tell you what to do, because I'm not in authority over you, and you're not in authority over me, but I'm just going to throw out this grenade and say, someone ought to do something about that if they love people. Great mark of a church, isn't it? It'd be one thing if our church was known for punching one another. But friends here... (laughs) It would be a bad thing, I want to clarify, if our church was known for punching one another. But the call here is for, for men to act in a certain way so that peace and love is their reputation. Not quarreling, not bickering, not passive aggressiveness, which is a sin, by the way. Arguments are harmful to the body of Christ in many ways, but especially when they hinder the church's prayers. Bitterness and resentment make for bitter, unheard prayers. In fact, Jesus taught that if we're to have a dispute, we should not come to worship at all until the matter is settled. The call of the Lord's Supper is to say, if you've got an offense against another brother, don't eat of the food. It will defile you. And any minister who represents God's people in prayer must be a holy man. This is the call of this as well. The the psalmist says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? In other words, who's qualified to pray on behalf of God's people? The answer is, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. There's a direct spiritual connection between personal piety and public prayer. It takes holy hands and a holy heart to lead God's people in prayer to a way of holiness. The power of prayer is indirectly related to its purity. The prayers of an unholy man will go unanswered, while the petitions... Of a righteous man will move many mountains. Of all incentives we have to live holy lives, Ben, this is this is truly the most compelling, isn't it? So that God will answer our prayers. This explains why Christians always pray in the name of Christ, where he is the only mediator between God and man. He offers cleansing from sin through his blood shed on the cross. So the Christian prays like this, Lord, I know you answer only the prayers of the righteous, but please answer my prayer anyway. Not because I'm righteous, but because Christ Jesus is righteous and because his blood is the atonement for my sin. See me as you would see him. And whenever we pray in the name of Christ, God will... Hear us out, unrighteous though as we are. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, the writer says, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. That's from Hebrews chapter 4. Now to conclude, uh, I think the call and the challenge of this text is particular and obvious. Men, what does the public see when they witness your worship of God? Do they see faith, hope, and love? Do they see you lifting holy hands? Do they, or do they sing anger or quarreling? And even worse, no prayer. I hear about every other week... I hear about every other week that our church needs to have more activities for kids during worship. We've got to win them to Christ. We've got to give them something to do. We can't expect them to stay in here. And I I just want to respond to that and say study after study after study after Deuteronomy confirms one thing, one thing. And hear me on this. Children will learn the faith of their parents one way or the other they'll see us either as hypocrites and they'll learn and they'll fall in line or they'll see us as faithful monkey see monkey do see a hypocrite become one see a dad in prayer become a man of prayer my son is like five weeks old And I'm scheming of how I can help and honor my wife while still finding ways to play golf. (laughs) And I think I've found a way. Time will tell. Soon enough, I'll push that chair down the fairway, holding on to my clubs behind me. But over time, I'll be dragging that kid out there, leaving mom to do what she wants at home, and I'll spend time in the course and... Over time, he won't want to come. He'll say, the cor- he'll say he's bored. He'll say he doesn't care. Or he'll say it's hot. And I'll turn to him and say, I don't care how you feel. I'm not on this golf course for you. I'm on this golf course in spite of you. Yet, who you are. Very often. We succumb to what others around us care about rather than what God calls us to care about. We're to lift holy hands. Even if it feels like a long time, pretend it's a Disney movie and it's not that long at all. Men, how you worship God says everything about you. God doesn't need your worship. It doesn't say anything about him. He is who he is. Eternal, glorious, holy. He doesn't need you to make Himself more holy. How you worship Him says everything about you. Others don't need it as well. But God sees it, and He promises to honor it. And others see it, and they'll learn from it. But how you worship God says everything about you. And you either have an enemy's heart with blood-stained hands or a saint's soul with holy hands. And when you gather for worship, do you have holy hands to lift to the Lord? Now, women and wives, do you hope for this? Do you hope for a church full of men with holy hands? Do you pray for that? Do you expect this? Do you ask for this? Do you encourage and aim to strengthen this? If your husband comes home today and wants to apply this and says something like, I don't know how to do this but I'd like to pray. Or, hey, let me read a psalm. Apparently people do that. Let me read a psalm to the kids before we go to bed. Will you build him up or will you make fun of his shoddy prayer? Or will you go, oh, look he wants to apply the sermon? Or will you say, "It's, it's bath time. It's 7.30. You had all day to pray and now you want to do it while little Timmy's in a tub? There's an older woman who uh, here. There's an older woman here whose late husband I barely know anything about. Uh, she's told me a couple of times throughout the years that he would often pray after every field he would plant and every after every field he would harvest. He would get off the tractor, go behind, and he would get on his knees and he would pray. I don't know what this guy looked like. I don't know what his accomplishments are. I couldn't tell you if he was funny or involved or handsome or rich. All I know is his legacy. And it's one of prayer. Women, do you remind people at what the psalmist called the city gates of the fame of what you find in your husband, either here or in glory, the the courage to do what God says Men are called to set the pace and the tone of righteousness in this church. And may we be known for it. Let's pray.